Hi, I'm David Freudberg, the host of Humankind. I actually grew up in public radio. I've been in the field since I was 16. And from the start, I was taught to offer people content that will inform and enlighten. This podcast is dedicated to spreading ideas that speak to the highest part of our listeners rather than the lowest common denominator. If you like what you hear, we're asking for your help please leave us a kind review on iTunes so others can find us. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund and a grant from the Henry Luce Foundation. to dump it all on religion, ignoring these other multiple factors that are involved. Um, we, we're making a scapegoat of faith. An historian illuminates the confusing question of whether religious belief is the real driver of terrorism. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Armstrong is a brilliant, complex, fascinating historian based in London. Her enormously popular public lectures earned her the TED Prize, which she devoted to establishing the Charter for Compassion. It commits leaders across religious and national boundaries to working for peace. Her best-selling books examine the shared values and circuitous histories of Islam, Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, and other traditions. And Karin Armstrong's memoir, The Spiral Staircase, My Climb Out of Darkness, traces her own spiritual journey. I lived for seven years as a nun, uh, but I could not pray. I was completely unable to pray. Probably the kind of meditation we all had to do wasn't suitable for me. But for seven, I, I, I just could not, I could concentrate on my work for hours at a time. But I could not make an hour's meditation. The, the heavens seemed closed, rather. And I, when I left the convent, God slipped very easily away. And I hated religion for a while. I had found the whole way it was presented to me uh, unkind. I was a very wrecked human being when I left my convent. And I wanted nothing to do with religion. If I saw someone on a train reading a book about religion, I thought, oh, I felt an instinctive revulsion, never imagining for one moment that I would be the author of such a work. But in fact, Karen Armstrong has gone on to write best-selling works of comparative religion, including her sweeping book, A History of God, The 4,000-Year Quest of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. She's also chronicled the life of the Buddha. Diving deeply into these traditions led Karen away from the rigidity of her life in the convent and toward a more liberal and mystical faith. I came back to it uh, when I, w- I went to Israel for the first time and uh, there encountered Judaism and Islam for the first time. There were aspects of those faiths that helped me to see what my own faith had been really trying to do at its best. Which was? The, A, the, the, the fact that we can never know God 
all of them say that. Allahu Akbar, God is always greater than we can conceive. And that we must not create idols. An idol is not just a statue before whom you bow. A human idea or a doctrine of God can be an idol. A mere projection of ourselves writ large. But other things too. Uh, they say to, to get God, to understand what God is, you have to put the self to one side. And early in my studies, my early books were really quite uh, Dawkins-esque uh, and hostile to religion. The, the famous atheist. Yes. Uh, but I, um, I, when I, I encountered a, a footnote uh, in a major three-volume work on Islam, which said that the historian of religion must approach the spiritualities of the past with what he called the science of compassion. Uh, which doesn't mean that you feel pity, but uh, that in a scholarly way, when you're studying a, a spirituality, a medieval spirituality, say, that looks utterly bizarre, he said you don't judge it from the standpoint of post-enlightenment rationalism. You must, in a scholarly way, recreate the circumstances in which that spirituality developed. Uh, you must uh, see what, what was going on politically, economically, intellectually, what suffering what was going on and not leave it until you can imagine yourself he said in some sense feeling the same in that that's what compassion is to feel with the other in that way he said you will broaden your horizons and make a place for the other in your mind and heart and that meant that i had to put clever over opinionated over educated cara to one side at my desk every day and enter into the mind of a man like the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, who lived in the hell of 7th century Arabia and sincerely believed he'd been touched by God, whatever that meant. And unless I could do that, I would not miss the essence of who he was, of who the Prophet was. And that rubbed off of my daily life too. How does that manifest? Well, when I... Because I, when I went out with friends, I noticed how people were constantly judging things from the point of view of post-enlightenment rationalism or from an egotistic point of view, or I think this or I think that, without seriously think, entering, leaving the clever one's self-opinionated self behind and putting yourself in the position of the other. Uh, and that has changed me. I used to be a very spiteful person. People used to say, I really would not like to be your enemy. Um, and, um, and someone actually said, you never say anything nice about anybody. And that changed. Now, I can get intimations when I'm studying of wonder, or just for two or three minutes. Now, I used to work in a, teach in a Jewish seminary, uh, and Rabbi Lionel Blue, who's a great broadcaster in Britain, uh, said, you, darling, he said, you're very Jewish. This is what Jews do. We don't talk to God. Uh, we get it in study. You have moments of illumination. That's all I can claim to have. Uh, but just, but it requires an abandonment of ego. Now, I am not an egoless person yet, otherwise I'd be Buddha. But that discipline of study, and for other people it will come in different ways. A nurse, for example, in a hospital, uh, a carer who's having constantly to 
put herself in the position of uh, a sick person or a, a, a geriatric person uh, is having to leave that self behind. And if you can sort of systematize that, I think that that's what the that's what I'd learned from all the religions, and that even God leaves him or itself behind in a kenosis and self-emptying. That's in Jewish mysticism. It's in the whole idea of Jesus, uh, uh, the divine. For Karen Armstrong, an authentic spiritual journey is grounded in the basic human quality of compassion. It means, she says, not just an essential posture of caring about others, but also striving to speak kindly and a willingness to expand our caring beyond members of our own group. And it asks us to treat ourselves with human understanding. Karen's book, 12 Steps to a Compassionate Life, explored the fundamental principle of treating others as we would wish to be treated, famously stated in the Golden Rule attributed to Jesus, and a cornerstone of ethics and religion across the world's cultures. That was first expressed in written form by Confucius some 500 years before Christ. And these people who created the gold, who uttered the Golden Rule, uh, Confucius, Mozi, uh, the sages of the Upanishads, uh, the Buddha, uh, Muhammad, Jesus, uh, the prophets of Israel, uh, the Rabbi Hillel. Uh, they were all living not in idyllic circumstances where they were, you know, in peaceful groves or desert fastnesses. They were living in violent societies like our own, where aggression had reached an unprecedented crescendo. When Confucius uttered the golden rule, China was at the beginning of a hideous period in its history. Over 200 years, the states of the Chinese plain fought one another ruthlessly with hideous violence to the uh, peasantry uh, for, in, until only one of them was left, and then you have the Chinese empire. Looking at this carnage, the sages like Confucius, Mozi, said that you must have concern for everybody. As Mozi said, a ruler must treat another state as his own, because if people don't, we will destroy one another. Uh, and uh, that has never been more true than it is today with the weapons that we've created. Mutual assured destruction. Yes. Uh, and let it, and they developed... Uh, methods and ways uh, of trying to inculcate those peaceable uh, elements in our brains and psyches that makes us reluctant to kill our own kind. Uh, Mencius, a third century BCE Chinese sage, uh, gave, gave the example of a somebody walking down the road and seeing a child standing on the brink of a well about to fall in. And he said... Everything in your body makes you want to rush out and grab that child. There'd be something very peculiar about a human being who could look, walk past and say, oh, what a pity, as the child fell to its knees. But, but some, that, there's that instinctive outreach towards others and suffering. Um, it, it can be measured by neurologists. Uh, 
but it's not as strong as the violent tendencies in our brains, the, the in instinctive urges to uh, protect our own kind, to protect our territory, fighting others for, for scarce resources. That, those are instinctive drives, but they, they, they can be tempered. And you must not confine your benevolence to your own group, they all say. Love your enemies, said Jesus. Uh, love the stranger, uh, says Leviticus. If a foreigner lives with you in your land, do not molest him. You must treat him as one of your own people and love him as yourself, for you were strangers in Egypt. And that's the impulse of the golden rule. Look back and remember your own pain when you were a despised minority in Egypt. Remember that and do not inflict that pain on anybody else. Never treat others as you would not like to be treated yourself. So the golden rule is very clear on this advice. Can this go deeper? Rather than just not doing unto others as we would not have done to us, can this go deeper? Can we see the other life, the other person, uh, as our own life? Is, is there an ultimate unity possible? Can we break through to that level? I think that's what the Golden Rule is trying to say. As Confucius said, use your own self as a guide to your dealings with others, a sense of a sharing of life. Um, and what the religions... Have, I've just been doing some work on scripture recently, and I find that a common element in all scripture is to push people towards looking at the divinity of a human being or of, or of the human being in some way. Certainly very clear in Indian scripture. There's not such a big gap between the divine and the human as there is in the monotheistic religions, but a guru is, is, a, is a sacred person. So to look at the, the godliness in others, which we all share, uh, th that, that I think is there, but it has to be cultivated uh, because our selfishness, our instinctive tendency to put number one first, uh, to get the job that other people won't have, uh, to look after me and mine, uh, that is very strong in us too. Uh, the ego is very strong. Uh, when our egos are bruised, we, we lash out. It, and it, uh, and uh, so it's hard work to... I wrote a book about compassion called 12 Steps to a Compassionate Life. Which I enjoyed a lot. Thank you. And um, modelled and deliberately evoking the um, Alcoholics Anonymous uh, program uh, because we're addicted to our pet hates. We don't know what we'd do without them. Be because they form our identity? Yeah, very often. Uh, we're, we de often define ourselves. Uh, we certainly often define ourselves nationally over against other people or uh, other ethnic groups, for example. Well, when war is waged... The leaders rally us against the great evil character in another country. Yes. That is the unifying force. Yes, and, it, and, it's, and it's attacking everything that we are, uh, that we make an enemy of ourselves, that say that they are the complete opposite of us. And non-human, we often, uh, one of the things that uh, soldiers are trained to do is somehow dehumanize the, the enemy in some way it, with exercises in their heads. Uh, and not think of it as a, as a sentient human being with vulnerabilities and desires and families uh, like, like our own. But that has to be cultivated. 
Uh, and similarly, you know, we don't even think of going to war. Uh, some people, when they, you see them inveighing against the uh, iniquities of others, uh, are often aglow with a sense of egotistic righteousness. Um, St. Paul says, uh, you know, charity is not puffed up. And sometimes you see people almost swelling in delighted self-congratulation as they inveigh against X, Y, or Z. And of course, it's important to inveigh against evil wherever we see it. But uh, remember, uh, I think as Gandhi said, to, to concentrate on the deed, but not ever dismiss a whole person as evil because we don't know what goes on in that mysterious humanity of his or hers. Talking with religious historian Corin Armstrong, best-selling author of A History of God, Fields of Blood, Religion and the History of Violence, and 12 Steps to a Compassionate Life. Her Charter for Compassion campaign calls on people in all religions to reject as illegitimate any interpretation of scripture that breeds violence or hatred. It's supported by people in 180 countries. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, Karen Armstrong's Compassion Campaign, and to download an audio copy or obtain a CD, please visit humanmedia.org. People of conscience everywhere are deeply troubled by the multiple atrocities against civilians in which the perpetrators have invoked the name of the self-proclaimed Islamic State. Sadly, says Corin Armstrong, violence in the name of religion is not new and not confined to people who profess to follow Islam. Uh, there have been incidents in both Christianity and Islam where religion has been frequently used uh, as, as, as a mot motivation for really horrific violence, uh, as, in, as in Hinduism, um, in all of them, in fact. Even Buddhism today, uh, the Buddhist monks are taking up arms. But um, it's been quite clear that people like IS uh, have been condemned by every single leading Muslim cleric worldwide uh, who say that this, this uh, infringes major... Uh, injunctions of, of Muslim law. The killing of civilians is outlawed in Muslim uh, uh, law. Uh, you quite, may, quite clearly. Oh, quite clearly. It, it was a virtuous act to free your prisoner. And, um, the, the, and he, there's one injunction, he says, where you, if you set them a task, you must work with it, work with them, and you must give them the food that you have for yourselves. As for the beheading of civilians, this is, this is ab absolutely out of court. And brutality committed against civilians has become a horribly familiar tactic intended to provoke fear and terror. New York City Mayor Rudolph Giuliani on September 11, 2001. People are doing everything that they can to rescue as many people as possible, and this is going to be a long-term effort. So we just pray to God that we can save a few people. After 9-11, uh, the Gallup poll uh, did a survey, the longest and largest survey it had ever undertaken, in 35 Muslim-majority countries. 
Um, and it came up with a range of fascinating things, which never really got the airing that it should. One of the questions they asked was, um, were the 9-11 attacks justified? 93% of the respondents said no, that there was absolutely, uh, it absolutely violated essential Muslim principles, and the reasons they gave were all religious. They quoted, for example, from the Quran, where God says uh, that to take one life is to destroy a whole world. And similarly, um, but, the, but the 7% who said, yes, it was justified, their, their reasons were entirely political, such as Palestine support of hideous rulers in the, the region, that kind of thing. Uh, so th there you had here a clear invo invocation of, of, of the faith uh, by majority leaders, and that really sh should have been made known, because we're, if we keep on thinking that there's something uh, endemic in Islam that pushes Muslims to violence, then we're really missing essential ingredients in our very serious predicament at this, this present time that we ought to be examining too. And missing the destination of the bridge that the West needs to build. Yes, we need, yeah, we need to see, because I am very aware, as a, a British person, uh, of how much we have contributed. Uh, we British have contributed to the present disaster. Uh, it came, that became very clear to me. My first visit to Israel-Palestine in 1982, I was, went out to make a television program, uh, and had no real interest in the, politic, the, the politics of the region or much knowledge of it. But as soon as you're there, you're drawn into discussion by everybody on all sides. Uh, the one thing that uh, the Israelis and Palestinians could agree on was how awful the British had been. And uh, I, I began to see that this wasn't just a Middle East problem, this was our problem too. Um, and you can certainly say that with uh, the Indian subcontinent, the uh, creation of Pakistan, uh, the, the terrible uh, sep se separation of Israel, of Pakistan and India, which cost millions of lives, and the displacement of seven million people. Uh, this was, uh, this was, you know, this we, this is down to us. And of course, uh, when we faded out as a great world power. America took on the, the mantle, uh, whereas before, uh, the United States had often chided Great Britain for its inequitous policies. In Iran, for example, after the, in 1906, after, the first, uh, after, after they'd had a constitutional revolution to demand that the Shah gave them a parliament and a constitution, uh, the British kept rigging the elections. Uh, in order to secure Iranian oil, which they discovered in 1908. And the Americans at that time kept saying, you must not do this, and were regarded as by the Iranians at that time as their, their friends and allies. Um, and so, uh, but, but then, uh, you know, now we, 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 we know that we've, both our nations have been involved in supporting regimes and like Saudi Arabia, for example, which has contributed a great deal to the uh, narrowing of the focus of Muslims in the last, during the last 30 years, using their petrodollars to do so with tacit Western support.
kids going off to join ISIS, um, they tell people tell me, look, these these young people, they've got jobs, they've got families, they've got children, and I say precisely. The whole people in not very exciting jobs, in a boring marriage, domesticity. Uh, the th it's a sort of great, it's a the great rush of delight, a sort of gang. It's a new sort of gang, uh, rather than any specific religious impetus. I mean, to pretty, pretty pathological what you're describing. To, to, to get kicks, people commit murder in it's, an it's, organized yeah, fashion. Yeah, exactly. It is terrifying. Uh, but uh, it, the, that impetus, historians of war again tell us, that sense of boredom and triviality has been what has persistently driven young men to the battlefield or called young men to the battlefield. And you, you look at masculine games. I look at them with astonishment. Uh, all that rough and tumble and uh, grunting and hurling themselves at one another, all a very good substitute for that. You know, you, you get that high there too. Um, and, and, and then there's a testosterone element to it. But, uh, it, but certainly that, that, that is a factor. Two, but very little Islamic stuff goes into this. Um, two young wannabe jihadis who went... Um, from Birmingham, UK, to uh, Syria in 2014, had ordered two books from Amazon. One was Islam for Dummies, the other was the Quran for Dummies. And uh, people who've been um, involved, uh, the French uh, hostage, Francois Didier, who was held hostage for 10 months by ISIS until he was released, said that his cap the, the discourse of his captors was entirely secular. And when they asked for a Quran, no one had one. Um, and and the an ed, a journalist from Foreign Policy magazine was uh, holding discussions with a, fifth, a, a whole group of ISIS supporters in Jordan. And he said they never once raised the topic of religion. The thing was all political and that none of them got up for the call to prayer, which in Amman is absolutely deafening. You can't miss it. So this is certainly portrayed in the West as fervent believers mowing people down because they're disbelievers. And you're saying that there's very little religious discussion or even evidence of religious observance. Exactly. And they are using it, of course. Um, but historians of warfare tell us that we never, never go to war for a single reason. Uh, there are always multiple factors involved, uh, including uh, economic, which is one of the chief causes of warfare from the, from the very, very beginning, uh, the struggle for scarce resources, uh, social, pol political, territorial, um, as well as ideological. And experts on terrorism tell us that whatever its ideological motivation, terrorism always has a political input. It's about grabbing power, challenging the status quo, um, or trying to force a regime to change a certain policy or to adopt a certain policy. So when we talk about to dump it all on religion, ignoring these other multiple factors that are involved, 
um, we, we're making a scapegoat of faith. Corin Armstrong, religious historian, founder of the Charter of Compassion, and best-selling author of A History of God and Fields of Blood. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Doug Sugertz. Editorial assistance from David Cruz, Ken Rogers, Kathy Graham, and Mark Kilstein. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. And our web address is humanmedia.org. And you can subscribe to our free weekly podcast, Humankind on Public Radio, available at iTunes. This segment, Karen Armstrong's Compassion Campaign, is Humankind Program number 246. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.